I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design with a conversation from the West Edge Design Fair circa 2019. I've been holding on to this episode for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that with everything that's been happening over the past two years, talking about designing around collected things seemed a little off to me. But now, things are different. Let's get back to collecting, shall we? Seriously, with the office slash classroom slash yoga studio and trying to make those things work together, it seemed a little tone deaf to try and talk passionately about designing around collected things. But the time is right again to start thinking about these things again. Collections make us happy. And in 2019, as I was crafting panels for West Edge in the Convo by Design Programming Lounge, here was the inspiration for this panel. It was called, it was entitled The Collectors. Collected clutter made impeccably designed collections. Many, if not most of us, have gathered and keep treasures. These collections represent the curiosity and vitality of life adventures and are, at least we hope, to be incorporated into our living spaces. Today's ensemble of creatives have achieved mastery incorporating treasures into the design of their clients' dreams. Learn strategies that make for a smoother process when showcasing collections. Moderated by George Smart, host of U.S. Modernist Radio, and featuring Kevin Isbell of Kevin Isbell Interiors, Laura Muller of Four Point Design Build, and Jules Wilson of Jules Wilson Design Studio. So that was the panel. It was recorded live in front of a live studio audience, live studio, in front of a live audience from West Edge in 2019 in October, and that is coming up right after this. For well over a year now, you have been hearing incredible conversations, interviews, and panels with amazing creative talent as part of our Wellness and Design Thought Leadership series presented by Thermosol. It has been and continues to be an absolute joy working with the entire team at Thermosol from the top down. This multi-generational family business has been producing the gold standard in steam generators, saunas, steam showers, and steam shower accessories for decades. Thermosol is the original steam shower with technology that is state-of-the-art, made and manufactured in the United States. The company's history with steam showers started by David Altman in 1958. Murray Altman acquired Thermosol's steam bath division in 1989, and the company is now led by Mitch Altman from their world-class production facility in Round Rock, Texas. The most successful designers and architects are using steam showers to maximize wellness, relaxation, and enjoyment for their clients. Thermosol is a staunch advocate for the design trade, and I am so proud to have them as a presenting partner of Convo by Design and the Wellness and Design Thought Leadership Series. If not familiar with the entire range of Thermosol products, please check out thermosol.com. Good morning. Welcome. It's Sunday morning. West Edge, Design Fair 2019, thanks for coming out. This next um, first panel of the day, super excited about this one, and I hope you are as well. It's, uh, it's the collectors. It's about uh, collected clutter and designing around it, designing with it, designing for it. Um, I- I'm a huge fan of this, 
uh, and we've been talking about it a lot because this year is kind of the year of evaluating collections and evaluating clutter and evaluating the things that we hold most dear. So th this panel uh, is going to dive deep, and I'm excited about that. So with that, U.S. Modernist Radio's uh, George Smart is going to lead our conversation. I'm excited. Take it away, George. Thank you very much, Josh. Welcome, everybody. How are you doing this morning? Good. All right. Thank all of you for coming out. It's been a great show. If you haven't seen it all yet, you're going to have a, an excellent time here. I'm George Smart. I'm the founder of USmodernist.org and the host of US Modernist Radio, which is a show about the people that own, create, love, and create modern architecture. I am so glad to be here and, and hosting this. This is my first time at West Edge. How many of you are here for the first time? Raise your hands. So some of you and the rest of you are a repeat. I am very privileged here, too, to represent and talk with these very strong, good-looking, and above-average designers, all three. As we talk about how collections inspire them and influence their work. So let's face it, we are a nation of pack rats. We have so much stuff that the self-storage industry just laughs at us all the way to the bank. One in 11 Americans pays an average of $95 a month, often for years, to store things they will never, ever use again. That's 1 11th of our nation, or 39 million people, creating a $39 billion industry. About three times the volume of the entire Hollywood box office gross for last year. According to Curbed, according to Curbed, the volume of self-storage units could fill the Hoover Dam 26 times. We cannot bear the emotion of parting with our grandma's chair or, um, well, that life model drawing you did in college that you can't share with your kids. Or the boxes of magazines, CDs, albums, Beanie Babies, and strangely, still, old National Geographics. Well, then there are collections which we're gonna talk about today, the Dom Perignon of stuff. First of all, collections have better verbs. We don't assemble collections, we curate them. We don't buy collections, we acquire them. And we don't sell collections, we divest them. From artifacts to furniture to art, collections represent the curiosity and vitality of life's adventures. Today's panel will share strategies for a smoother process of showcasing collections incorporating found and sought treasures into the design of their clients' dreams. I'm competing against a big air pattern today. Let's meet the panel. Uh, Kevin Isbell founded his design studio in 2009 with locations in New York and Los Angeles. His design passion, fueled by a love of travel, is a mix of worldly periods and cultures coupled with his clients' own inspiration. His work has earned praise from publications such as the New York Times, Architectural Digest, House Beautiful, Traditional Home, and Susanna Salk's book, Be Your Own Decorator. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you. It's good to be here. Laura Muller is principal of Four Point Design Build, an award-winning interior designer, author, and builder in Southern California for over 35 years. She was 2016 ASID president in Los Angeles, 
and won the prestigious 2014 Adele Faulkner Award for Outstanding Community Service. She also, I learned, is a former professional singer and has been known to sing Christmas carols well before Thanksgiving. Welcome, Laura. Are we going to hear any of that today? <laughs> Thank you. Well, that depends. Sure. <laughs> They're not good Christmas carols. They're just... What's your favorite October Christmas carol to belt out these days? Oh, Sleigh Ride. Sleigh Ride? Yeah. That's the most anticipatory song that you can listen to. Okay, cool. And and lastly, Jules Wilson is principal of Jules Wilson Design Studio, an award-winning multidisciplinary design firm with over two decades of industry experience. Her unique integrative approach incorporates schematic architecture, hardscape, visioning, and other disciplines to create a singular design narrative. And she recently purchased the residence of Frank Lloyd Wright apprentice, Frederick Liebhardt, is that how you pronounce it? And is renovating the home with her boyfriend, hospitality designer, Paul Basile? Basil. Basil, okay, I was close. I was giving it the Italian spin. Uh, welcome, Jules. Thank you. All right, well, let's kick off with something that's been going on here in Los Angeles the last couple of months. Uh, One of the most talked about houses in Los Angeles and the entire country has been the Brady Bunch house near Studio City. Uh, Based on the series, which is now 50 years old, the Brady kids came together and working with HGTV's celebrity staff have totally transformed the inside of this house to look exactly like it did on television. Because before, they were totally different. We just saw the outside shots in the old series. I was want to ask the question, I'll start with Jules and we'll work this way. What's been the impact on design and popular culture of the Brady House? Oh, this is a good question. Um, I think today it is kind of a response of a rebellion to minimalism, I think, that we have going on and the enthusiasm around nostalgia. And so certainly for the Brady Bunch, nostalgia um, for a lot of us reminds us of childhood. I think for the younger generation who is bored of modern, um, you know, more minimalist type interiors, um, it's fun for them to dive into. And then with the trend of 70s and 70s glam going on, I think it just kind of touches everyone's heart because there's something that's really sort of authentic um, about it. So I guess that would be my two cents. (laughs) Okay, thank you. Laura? Well, I would agree with Jules. I think that a lot of the, uh, certainly the architecture um, is very vivid in my mind, especially. um, And I think the colors and the color blocks themselves are coming back and influencing um, even into the appliance uh, appliances today with the uh, the tangerines and the kind of the sage greens, although there used to be avocado. I had an avocado oven. I know exactly what color it is and it's coming back. Although it's a little different this day because you know every it's time it's guacamole green now yes right with a new <laughs> name I think that every time we, we kind of re-energize something there's a, there's a surge now, of uh, injecting something yeah. more um, more current you want to put a spin on it but you there is so much devotion to what that stands for that architecture and that design stands for it's part of our culture it is very much I think the new version of avocado is army inspired though so it's the greens, but coming out more in those olives and, and army tones. Yeah, 
the camo camouflage. Camo yeah. 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 Camouflage is the new avocado. Right. The smeg ones are, you can get in lime green or any sort of color, right? So what do you think, Kevin, about the impact of the series? Well, both what the lady said about color and just sort of nostalgia. Um, I know a certain young person in Ohio who was uh, very influenced by when Greg Brady sort of redid the study, right, into this sort of teenage lair that was very inspirational, to me at least. Um, but yeah, I think for sure that the coloration, the way they put like greens and yellows and oranges and those kinds of things that, you, that were very quintessential 70s are very coming sort of back into full swing, I think. And everyone loved those stairs, didn't they? Yeah, I was yes. going to say something. Except going up and down the moment. The stairs a big moment, for sure. In my condition today, I would not be A lot of coming and going. Well, there's this, it's this, it's like if, if brutalism and minimalism had a baby, it would be the Brady House, right? <laughs> so I like the fact that that is coming back. And I think that did its, that, that was very innovative at the time. Um, and it really represented uh, something that was really designed. It, it, the design and the architecture was just as much of the conversation on the show as anything else. And they used their set really, really well. I mean, the stairs were part of episodic storyline. And the kitchen and the compartmentalized kitchens and the swing doors. I mean, every little thing. And they had a den that led out on the sliding doors, out onto the, into the backyard in a detached garage. These are things we aspired to. And I think it's nice that those chunky lines are coming back yeah. and we're incorporating them again and we're editing it again for our generation. But it's definitely an influence today. Yeah. I think it also was very successful in taking some um, typical modern elements like the floating treads and some of the more contemporary lines, a full height glass, a post and beam, and putting it in um, a dialogue that I think the masses could relate to because I think a lot of um, the more earlier mid-century, although, um, you know, excites a lot of us now, I think that it was kind of hard to comprehend for a lot of people, you know, this revolt against decoration and felt sterile, didn't feel warm, didn't feel cozy. And I think the Brady House sort of brings modernism in, but gives you a family home that's comfortable and, and tactile. And functionality was really, I think, part of it, too. The, how everything functioned really well. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think it brought a different style of architecture into the homes of people across the country, right? So you might not have had that post and beam construction in Ohio, like where I was from. It's more common in California, obviously. Um, so I think it was influential in that way and that it did sort of open people's eyes to different sort of vernaculars, really. Yeah, a new type of house. And as a native Californian, it kind of feels like our architecture. Yeah. It's like our style. As a new transplant, I would have to agree with you right? on that. Yeah. <laughs> so as an epilogue to that question, uh, HGTV has, has finished the project. Um, the neighbors are not too happy with all the traffic that has been going through the area. They want to make it either into some sort of museum that you can go visit, or they may put it on the market. Uh, Lance Bass, who originally tried to buy the house, is maybe thinking about buying it again. So the future of the house is uncertain, but it's going to be pretty exciting whatever happens to it. All right, let's go to our direct topic for today, collecting. And I want to start with Kevin and work down and ask you, what do you personally collect? Oh, God. Um, 
I try not to because I, I, I manage to sort of scratch that itch with my clients a little bit. I do collect Architectural Digest from the 70s, 1972 to 84 to be exact. Um, I, I have to talk to you about that, yeah. I do have a little bit of a thing about lamps. So I, I haven't seen a mid-century pottery lamp that I don't love, right? So Or didn't buy. Or didn't buy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, right, right. So I do try to curb that, uh, that a little bit because I would end up with a house full of stuff. So I kind of, I'm able to sort of filter that desire through to clients. Magazines and lamps. Magazines and lamps and, yeah, maybe inlaid boxes. Okay. And, yeah. Okay. We'll just stop there for now. <laughs> All right. <laughs> right. Laura? I collect books. Okay. I have oh, yeah, thousands. Uh, and um, I collect with a focus on um, cookbooks. So uh, I've been collecting with my mother for since I can remember. So for me, I can have books in every room. It can be part of the coffee table structure. It can be, I can live, it's um, kind of for me very comforting. But yeah, I've collected books for a really long time. My husband is a um, and vintage car collector. So the little models, the, uh, the prototypical uh, you know, one-off. So he collects. So we do have a, we are kind of collectors in that. Um, he also collects vintage toys, so tin toys and stuff. So we collect. Our house is a is a collector house. So do you have book walls where entire walls are yes. shelving? Well, when we, you know, and this happens when you have a spouse or or a partner that is of different of different collector or it's what brought us together, but it's also what creates the need for extreme organization. But uh, yes, we actually did uh, restore many of the walls, built them out. He's a builder and a furniture, his hobby. So we were able to kind of incorporate pretty much on every wall somewhere. There is a floor to ceiling bookcase with either books or trucks in them. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it was a must because just because we collect doesn't mean I want it to be messy. You know, it's very... It's got to be organized. You're not a hoarder. No. Okay. That's, a, that's a real thing. <laughs> and a yes, serious it thing. But yes, it's, it um, it's, no, I'm not. I would never, I would actually have lent them out and I let them travel. And everyone eventually, I've only gotten two back ever with about 15 signatures. So, okay. interesting way to use your collection to have more of a, of a I guess it gives it more personal personality. It's more personal when you have books that have been around the world. And share them, yes. Yeah, yeah. That's what's for us. That's what matters. Jules, um, I, uh, my boyfriend and I collect art um, and have fun with art quite a lot. Uh, I also collect sunglasses. That's um, just an accessory I love, and shoes. That might sound cliche, but um, I take it fairly seriously. And then also um, early wallpaper magazines I collect. Oh, nice. Nice. I have all the original wallpaper magazines. That's so awesome. So what do you have more of? Magazines, shoes? What, what is the most quantity you have in your collection? I'm betting shoes. <laughs> um, it w- I guess it would... Huh, that's a good question. I mean, I guess quantity would be magazines, maybe okay. because there's more of them, but I think actually you're right, Kevin, probably shoes. Probably shoes. Probably shoes? Yeah. All right. But but we have a lot of art, too, so I would say they're all kind of in there. Okay. Well, this ties into my next question. Um, do you have a personal storage unit, and if so, what's in it? 
No, I definitely do not. Um, I believe in purging, and I like to be very organized. So even though I might have some items that I collect, I'm uh, never scared to throw things out. I think um, sometimes there's a misperception with designers or maybe someone who likes fashion or clothing that they're materialistic, but I sort of pride myself in being able to get rid of them easy. So there's a lot of coming and going, I would say. Laura, do you have a unit? Uh, yes. Well, we have, we have four children, and, and my mother now lives with us. So there is not any house ever built that I know of in my area that would be able to house the stuff. So it usually, yes, we do have an off-site storage um, because we also have samples. So we have, a, we have to put, store our samples somewhere. You know, we have to store the Christmas stuff and the kids' stuff from when they were in school. And eventually, hopefully, they'll come back and get it. But uh, yes, <laughs> right. uh, at, to date, they're in their, they're pushing 30s, all four of them. Yeah, no, not yet. It's still in the... In Spoiler the, alert, they're not coming. Yeah, I know, I know. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of was afraid of that, but so you know, so yes, we have we you know a normal family that you know uh, we need storage. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Kevin, what about you? Do you have a storage unit? I do not. Okay. No. Um, I'm a recent transplant from New York City, so I still kind of have that Manhattan mentality. So if it's coming in the house, it has to replace something else, right? Because space is always at a premium. So I haven't gotten into this uh, level yet. I'm sure once I'm here long enough, that will happen. But yeah. right now, it's, now I'm pretty spare. So that's in nice, that's refreshing. Yeah, it, it is. It it's, is. It's your microphone. Oh, no, I say it's refreshing. I mean, I would, I would like to kind of blink and wake up and have only what I absolutely need in my life. Um, but, you know, when you've got arms and fingers in the universe with kids and all that, it's just a different thing. You just have to pick and choose how you edit. Yeah, I'm lucky I don't have the trappings with the children and all of that. But um, what I have, I love. And I don't have a lot of what I love. I just keep what I love. Yeah, exactly. Kevin, you've recently relocated to Los Angeles, so how does design differ here from New York City? Uh, it differs. I'm still sort of dabbling in it, right, and figuring it out. Um, it's definitely more uh, leaning towards modern, I feel. Okay. Um, this is, of course, major brushstrokes, right? So, um, yeah, it feels less colorful and more maybe spare would be sort of my, yeah. my general take, yes. So do you find that varies for different places around the city or sort of is it across different neighborhoods or? Again, I feel like I've been here too, not long enough to really How give long you, now? It's only been nine months. Okay. But I spent a month in, out of the city in Italy for August. And then, so, I mean, it's, it hasn't been long enough. But I would say that maybe a house in Hancock Park would feel a little bit different than something in Malibu. Right. Okay. All right. Um, Jules, uh, what trending collections or design movements are making an impact on the design industry for you? Um, what trending movements? Yeah. Um, I would kind of go back to my personal passion, which is art. Um, and so I think in a lot of our work right now, we are... Um, compilating or curating a lot of different variety mixed together of artwork. We're having fun with it. We're being silly. We're showing our personality, um, you know, but we're also kind of 
going back to some kind of older nostalgic things as well. So um, I would say for me, it most comes out in, in artwork. Okay. And so how do you, how do you help your clients oh. with their collections of art, for instance? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think some clients want something more serious and formal and more monumental pieces. Um, when we do residential design, I think in our um, commercial design, multifamily, and hospitality, we're doing a lot more layers of artwork, and it's, I think, more dynamic. Um, I think our residential work tends to be kind of like what Kevin was saying, like cleaner, lighter, a little more understated. So um, I don't run into the clutter issues so much. It's, it's more very manicured, sure. bigger moves. Now, do your residential clients tend to already have their art and you've got to work with that, or are they wanting you to acquire more for them? Um, both. Um, definitely both. Okay. Yeah. okay. We, we like doing art. Um, it's something that we're very passionate about, I'm very passionate about. So um, even if they are collectors, um, we often do try to add in or, um, you know, move things around. We, I have two clients that are, are pretty serious art collectors, so I kind of would not actually venture in their territory because it's something that's very personal for them, and, and we have fun with it together, but it's kind of the thing that they like to do. It's their thing, yeah. Yeah, it's their thing. Okay. Yeah. All right. Laura, a question for you. Um, when you're working with clients, how do you group collections together for display? What do you look for when trying to organize a collection or curate it in a way where the pieces work with each other? That, that's a really great question because everybody kind of just looks at their stuff and goes, I don't even know where to begin. And I think the first thing that we do when we approach any sort of collection um, is to collect it and put it all in one place so that we can see all of it. You want to be able to see how many pieces you're working with and what the style uh, style the coloration, the size and proportions to each other and how we can approach to best, you know, we even curate from that collection when we organize it. So we pull the pieces out. Actually, we approach it with a, you know, like a three-step. So we take everything from all over the house and we put it in one room and it's all on the floor, let's say. And we kind of can get a, an idea of the, the size that we're working with. Then we say we have three piles. We say pull out the things that are an absolute, no touch, this must be, no matter what, that's in that one pile. Then this one is, mm, you know, I really love this. I could probably sift through this center area and maybe edit perhaps a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And then you have this area here. With, so I don't really care about that. It would be nice. But we can use those for layers and holes if we're working with pieces and shapes and proportions. If you have a book collection, um, you know, I'm, if a client said to me, you know, I want to have that rainbow book, I, I would have a, three Advil first, and then yes. I would go and say, okay, well, let's do that, you know, and you've got to do the same thing. You've got to organize it and get it into piles. But I think the most important thing is to get it all corralled into a place where you can actually set with it and sort it. Because there are going to be, uh, potentially there may be areas in the collection that you do need to edit. And there are, like when we do art, um, there's not everything is going to fit on the wall. With the onset of the trend to gallery walls, that's been 
kind of fun to work with, and it's for the eclectic collector that's been able, we were able to curate certain pieces that work together, but a gallery wall is very specific as well. So I think it's really about kind of diagnosing and prescribing at first and just getting it all in one place. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. You know, and taking it all in and dividing it. Because then that center, that center area is where you're going to have conversation, you know, when they're trying to edit and pull. And I always say to everyone, big top tip, you don't need to throw anything away today. You know, we're going to make piles and then we're going to have storage and then we'll put it away so that you can see if you can live without it and then we'll see if we need it. Baby steps. Baby steps. Because these things, as a mom, I mean, I wouldn't want to get rid of the hair tie that I got at Universal Studios when my daughters were seven. You know, that was our girl moment. So it's a stupid hair tie with a belt at the end of it, but you know what? That matters to me. So I understand when I'm working with a client who has a collection, because they really do care about those pieces. Each one has a story. But sometimes it can just look like an explosion. So it's very important to organize it. That's the first step. You are listening to The Collectors, Collected Clutter Made Impeccably Designed Collections, and you're going to hear the rest of it in just a moment. So listen, wallpaper's having a moment, a well-deserved moment that is allowing designers to craft and create in new and amazing ways. Convo by Design has a new partner this year. This partnership includes participation in our remote design house Tulsa project, of which you will be hearing a lot about this year. I've been working closely with an exclusive group of partners, and I am absolutely thrilled to be working with York Wall Coverings. This company has been crafting exquisite wall coverings for over a century, with an archive that dates back to the early 18th century. This deeply rich history provides inspiration for the future, and the designs available through the York Wall Coverings studio have long been lauded for their authenticity and craftsmanship. This art, artistry, and history combined with a commitment to continually reimagining the manufacturing process allows York Wall Coverings to provide a consistently exquisite product. For options and inspiration, find them online, yorkwallcoverings.com. You can also find their store locator tool online at yorkwallcoverings.com for a location near you. Uh, Kevin, question for you. How do you navigate around a client's questionable tastes. Uh, to use an example, um, with apologies to the artist, uh, dogs playing poker, for instance, and other items that you might find when you're called in to do a project. Um, you just have to delfully sort of um, assign it to maybe a lesser important location or room, you know. Like Rochester? The, yes, exactly. <laughs> the garage is a great place for those kinds of things. Um, staff rooms. Um, you can bury things in a house where, to a way that it is not uh, the focal point, right? So you just have to be very sort of uh, skilled in, in negotiating that with the client. I know in, in my house, I am a collector of questionable art, and uh, my wife uh, bans it to the garage. But sometimes questionable can be fun if everyone's in on the joke, right? Yes. Like if everyone knows that it is of, you know, it's kitschy or whatever, then you can sort of spin it in that way. It's when the owner doesn't know that it's bad that it becomes a little more problematic, uh, I think. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're thinking it's a priceless treasure, perhaps? Correct. Yeah. It's a velvet painting that you bought on, like, Sepulveda. Right. right. 
Well, and if there's enough of it, you know, if somebody's got exactly. a collection of of that's quite impressive of do, of poker puppy Playing poker dogs. art, yeah. Um, you could, you know, that just that actually gets me excited. I want to get up and I say, okay, I that's a, that's a challenge waiting right, to happen. Right. And I get like, oh, we'll just lacquer out a black room and we'll put some really cool lights and this will be this really stately. We'll make it work. We'll make it work because it right. it's so exciting to think of how you can turn something like the puppy poker art into something really amazing. If you have one or two pieces, then the questionable becomes potentially more questionable. Right, exactly. Right? For instance, in I had a project in Nantucket and I found all of these needlepoint portraits of fishermen and sailors, which individually are tacky, but grouped as one piece. It's almost like a Warholian kind wow. of um, look. And they sold the... Um, pattern, so they would all be done by someone different, right? So you would have two of the same, ostensibly, but you could see the artist's hand in same I mean, scene, one. but different. Same scene, artist. same right, right. Just different woman in Minnesota, whatever, doing the right. point, right? right? So individually tacky, together, sort of a contemporary spin on it, and everyone was in on the joke. Yeah. Okay, that's pretty cool. That's a pretty cool way of doing it. Uh, okay, so a question for all three of you, and we'll start with Jules. Um, mid-century modern, which I know many of you are, are fans of, has been huge the last 15 years. Do you see this continuing, or is the movement running out of steam? Jules? I think to answer that question, I have to separate architecture from interiors. Okay. I think architecture still very much has its steam, but it's kind of questionable the way that you define it. So are we replicating history? Not necessarily, but I think if you look a lot, if you look at the means and methods and ideology of modernism and mid-century and architecture, yes, absolutely, very alive today, particularly in the West Coast, in my humble opinion. Interiors, I don't feel, was ever as strong in the mid-century. Um, and so I think that is just... Um, I think there's always going to be people who love mid-century furniture, and that's never going to die. I don't think um, mid-century interiors are a thriving trend right now because I think um, the trends um, are actually more nostalgic-oriented, more layered more nod to um, more traditional elements and, and more back to decorative elements. So it kind of depends which way you're looking at it. Okay. From architecture to interiors. That's a good point. Thank you. Laura? I think what's happening in the mid-century um, stylized uh, in the furniture and interiors and in architecture, architecture, of course, a lot less because architecture you is a different uh, category of of influence, but on the interiors, I think what's happened is is that you take a really beautiful, um, ergonomically innovative kind of furniture type and the influence of Danish mid-century and those kinds of collections and those kinds of pieces that are investments are very different than how the pendulum has swung to the Amazon Wayfair mentality, which now says that Every piece in your, every you can have a mid-century house, and every piece in the house 
is a replica of something that was at one point incredibly innovative and <clears throat> you know comfortable to and 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 kind of state of, state of the art at the time to something that's just been saturated and i think what's happened is that it, the pendulum has is pushing as far to that one side of mid century to the it's just become saturated. I think, though, the value, um, the original value of mid-century, and like I said, the innovative aspect of it and the, the ergonomic aspect of it, the comfort, the practicality, the reuse of materials, I mean, I think it's all based in really good, innovative ideas that still hold strong today. I think what's happened is, is that this, you know, kind of just in the, in the, to the consumer, there's consumer saturation with that idea, and it misses the point sometimes. I mean, a real beautiful, and it's it is layers. I believe that you can have a beautiful Eames lounge chair set that you you can have one that's 50 years old, and you can have a brand new one custom that's going to your son. You know, eventually, these are heirloom pieces that people collect. It doesn't mean every piece in your home is a mid-century piece. You can blend it beautifully with slouchy slipcovery linens, etc. The beauty of it is its practicality. That's, I think, what does stand alone. All right. Yeah. Kevin? Um, personally, it can't die fast enough. Okay. Um, I think it's overdone. I think it's completely trite. I think it is just, it's been so overdone that I feel like it's unimaginative. So for me, the sooner the better. Okay. Yeah. So I think that, so- to her point, good design. If it worked, it worked, right? But uh, these slavish reproductions that you can order from Paragold or Amazon or whatever is not design. And guess what? It's also not mid-century because it was made in either India or China like a week and a half ago. Okay. So the good pieces will remain good, but this sort of boring slavish recreation of something that is, it's uninspired to me completely. Right. Mix it in with other, other pieces that are excellent, then you're, we're talking. But this whole kind of reproduction, you know, clean line sort of thing is really just mass-produced marketing. You're over it. Completely. Yeah, okay. Got it, got it. All right, um, let's look ahead. So I'd like to ask each of the three of you, and we'll start with Kevin. Do you see development or technologies that could disrupt interior design the way Expedia has disrupted travel and Uber has disrupted taxis? I think it can help disrupt some processes within interior design, right? Streamlining the way uh, the day-to-day business of design is done, the way you know things are ordered or purchased or what have you. But I don't think that you can ever really recreate the designer's eye and knowledge of scale and color and proportion and all of those things that require a talented and educated designer to do, right? So you can't put that in some algorithm and spit out a well-proportioned home, right? Now, how you purchase those things for that well-proportioned home and how you get them there and how you find them and source them, absolutely, I think that there is, but as far as the actual artist's hand that is required to create a livable environment, I don't see how that can be outsourced, honestly. Okay. All right. Laura? I, 
I completely agree with, with you, Kevin. I think that um, it does streamline our businesses. Um, we are spending less time in the car driving to showrooms and the conversations that are nurtured in showrooms, a lot of time it just is a time suck. And if you really want to grow a business and you really are looking to expand, then you've got to be boots to the ground in the office administrating and there's a ton of paperwork. So how do you get it all done? Even if you have a great staff, if you want more work, then you're going to have to, oh, you're always going to be pushing you know, and that challenge. So I think what it does is it helps us to streamline, but I would not dream of buying a a, a sofa online had I not seen it. So my travels, our travels as professionals to High Point to sit in these pieces of furniture to understand how things are made. Those, Those things are what we bring to the table. You're absolutely right. And scale, size, color, proportion, the layering that can happen. But I think that the fact that I can get a lot more procurement and purchasing done from my desk or I can even do it now at two in the morning when I can't sleep. So there's the innovation of, of the processes that can, can support that. But I agree with Kevin. It doesn't replace. It just is a business technology. Now how it, how it translates into the home, I think the technology has, is taking over. I mean, we have smart ovens and smart ranges and smart front door systems and smart security systems and the nest can talk to amazon i mean it's a lot i mean i'm taking it very slowly my me personally i'm not ahead of the curve on technology because i want to wait and see what happens like my iphone but it it is disrupting in a good way it it can move things forward in a in a positive way as long as it's not saturated for evil it's okay Okay, we'll try to avoid evil. Yeah, no, like Amazon. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Jules? Uh, I'm going to go that with the disruptions in our industry are mostly good. Um, I think the accessibility for resourcing is, um, has really been one of the, the biggest game changers. You know, um, long ago, we really, w- our clients were completely dependent upon us for resourcing items. Um, now today, they might be out looking and shopping and bringing some of their ideas to the table. What I think is good about this is that I think it just elevates the enthusiasm for design overall because it gets them involved, it gets them part of the process. We custom design a lot of um, the items that we do, so I don't think that, um, I don't worry about them kind of, um, you know, toxicating that territory, so to speak. I think the danger is that with some of the um, ease of use of tools out there today that sometimes the layperson can sort of convince themselves that they are the designer. But um, to be honest, it's not really anything that we're dealing with in our work that's problematic. But I think looking culture, culturally at large, um, that there's a lot of a enthusiasm towards design right now and and social media and the resourcing and people traveling more and all of this thing. So at large, I think it's good and I hope that we'll have a more beautiful environment, more beautiful spaces and more educated people as a result. My favorite experience with technology was when I was um, building a new house. Uh, 
and my wife called, and I had just gotten an iPhone, and my wife called and said that the bathroom decisions schedule had to be moved up, and they had to be made right then. And I was in an airport, grain to fly out. So I pulled out my iPhone and found some images of sinks and tiles and um, fixtures and things like that, and sent them to her. And, and now I'm pleased to report that every morning I wake up and walk in to the American Airlines Admirals Club men's bathroom, which is where I took the photos. And it, it worked out great. <laughs> I feel very much at home when I fly American. Luckily, they had a nice bathroom. Yes, they, yeah, somebody thought about that in advance. Right. They hired a designer, obviously. <laughs> All right, um, Jules, I'll start with you. What's the worst rookie mistake a new collector can make? That's a good question. A rookie mistake a collector would make, I would say, is um, buying things of poor quality, high trend, or just generally ugly. Um, I think collecting implies that it's going to endure time. And so... Um, but how do they know? How do they, how do how they do correct they that mistake? And how do, you, their- how do you recognize ugly early? That's a really tough question. I'm going to go with, they probably just have to use their magical instincts and hope they're right. I don't know that there is um, a specific. I mean, I think using an advisor, using a designer, you know, using someone that is um, more expert in that area would make sense, whether they're investing for the long haul or you know, making a wrong turn. But I also believe, especially when we're talking about a home, you know, if you collect things, even if they're weird or they they make no sense, if you love them and you start to collect them together, then they start to tell their own story. And arguably that might even be the most unique or the most interesting than what's expected. So I don't know. I think follow what you love. Okay. Good advice. Absolutely. Always follow what you love, right? right. As far as collections, for sure. I think, too, that I think having, um, I know it may sound controlling, but I mean, sometimes when you're a new collector, you're not sure what your objective is. So I think that understanding your objectives are very important to understand are you collecting for, like what Jules said, are you collecting for value? Are you collecting for investment purposes? Are you, then you would want to have an advisor. If, are you collecting because you want to just have a magnet from every city you ever go to? Yes. We can make that work too. I don't think, I think ugly is in the eye of the beholder. But I think if you have an objective, at least at the end of the road, you have collected something that may even be cohesive. Great, great. Thank you. So, uh, next question, we'll start with Kevin. Um, At what point does a collector become a hoarder? And how do you deal with a hoarder client? Do you have Marie Kondo on speed dial somewhere? I mean, how do you deal with that? Well, I think hoarder might be a loaded uh, question or a loaded term, but... uh, You have to contain it, and as a designer, it's sort of your job, right? So the more impactful you can contain that one random collection, the better off you are. For instance, I had a client who oddly collected 
Shriner statues and Shriner hats and Shriner like heads. Yeah. Masons, yes. He was a good Jewish guy who collected the Masons. Thanks for. So we just designed a glass front case and put all of it on display and backlit it and made it look important and beautiful. These are the big purple ones with oh, the yes, jewels of and course. all of that. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And if, you know, a bobblehead, a hat, anything, an ashtray, anything that had to do with them. So we just elevated it by giving it uh, a proper place in the home, lighting it, and making it feel and look much more um, unique than maybe what it would be individually. By the way, if if you've never been to a, a Shriners parade, you should really go because they bring out their little precision acrobatic go-karts and you've got these 65-year-old guys whizzing by each other at 45 miles an hour, a foot and a half apart. It's really precision. In like a basic, like a go-kart. Yeah, just little whipped up go-karts. It's quite fascinating. All right, Laura, I'll pass it to you about what do you do when you have a collector who is really a hoarder? Well, like Kevin said, that is a loaded question. Um, Hoarding is very serious. um, Yeah. Very serious um, issue and not to be taken lightly and not to be glossed over if there's any sort of essence that that may be a legitimate situation. You need to call in... um, an expert uh, to understand because they're not going to let go anytime soon of those items. Um, We have worked with um, clients that have those issues and borderline issues, actually. And it was indeed very difficult. And sometimes a moderator can be one consultant on one afternoon can kind of help them to edit. Um, Design does not potentially conquer that. You know, good design doesn't conquer that. Now, you that can't always said, put them in a cabinet in the front of the that, house Yeah, that said, you know, it's not just, it's not, they're not collecting those things. It's, it's much, much deeper. But, so when, let's move over to the one that has just a bunch of stuff, okay. you know. Um, I said that, I, I, I've said to my clients, I said, we just need to get a handle on it. And I, we would approach it the same way I said earlier before. I would, I would first discuss with them the ease at which they're ready to edit because that's a big deal, editing. Um, and then again, that's, I think that's probably where I discovered we're not going to throw anything away just yet because it's comforting to know. So we're going to separate them first. And then eventually, hopefully, we can check in in six months and say, okay, we're ready to edit that again. But yeah, you've got to look at that differently than somebody who collects pottery, you know, because that could be a really good thing, right? That could look okay. amazing. Yes. Um, and then I... I, I, I I really just think understanding the difference is important. I think as designers, we walk into just about every situation. I think it doesn't hurt to understand the difference. And you still can work with them. You can still solve a problem. We just have to build a garage for the stuff. Or a storage unit somewhere. Or a storage right. unit, right. Um, well, I'm going to go with the lighter side of this, a client that has a lot of stuff, because... You're right. There's a whole psychological sort of medical condition with with hoarding. Um, So in the case of a client that has a lot of stuff, um, my first step would to talk to them about um, a theory, a designer that I work with and I came up with a, a long time ago, and that organizing was really just purging and throwing away. 
and how good and therapeutic it feels. You know, when you think back um, as a child and your mother made you clean your room and your room was all nice and clean, you slept really well at night. And I think that there is a certain amount of well-being and clarity of thought um, and simplicity in life that I know that I personally really like. Hang about, on just a second. I'm sorry? Hang on, we're... Oh, yes, I know. There's a plane. Um, about being organized and decluttered. So I'd really try to shepherd them into that, that world first and foremost um, to whatever extent I was able to do that. Um, whatever is remaining, um, we would design built-in cabinets, probably mostly to hide it. If it's worthy of display, then depending on um, what it is, then we would just probably, like we've been talking about, collect it together and display it appropriately. Um, I'll give you one quick example. We, um, we had a client who collected Pez dispensers. Tons oh, sure. and tons Pez. of Pez dispensers. And actually, it was kind of novel and fun. And, you know, I had my half hour of or hour of like, you know, going through all the Pez dispensers and they were very fun. Um, we ended up framing out niches in a um, secondary back staircase um, where the little Pez dispensers kind of follow you up the back staircase, you know. So it wasn't something that, you know, was in the, the grand foyer or anything or but, you know, it had fun and it had its moment and it was kind of a silly, not expensive, not monumental, not necessarily important, but, but fun. So I think the spirit of whatever, again, you're collecting sort of dictates what the right design decision is. Yeah. Also, when you, like what Jules said, when you group things together, they do give the collection a superpower. You know, and how it's displayed, you, even trinkets or pez, if displayed properly, do have, you know, they become something completely different than the mess potentially that they were, the mess and confusion of just having them kind of all over the house. It becomes like the talking point of the house, actually, I'm sure. The, right? It's the like the of the two. People want to talk dispenses. about it. Yes, of course. They right. want to engage about their stories. Right. Which is far better than a Pez dispenser on every, like, On every table. Right, yes. Yes. In the kitchen. Right. Well, we have enough questions here for several more hours, but our time is up. I'm George Smart with U.S. Marnish Radio. Let's all give our panelists a big hand for coming and joining us today. Thank you, George. Thank you for attending. And they'll be hanging around for a few minutes if you want to come up and chat with them or ask some questions. Enjoy the rest of your day at West Edge. We are living in a time of incredible growth, both technologically and creatively, with respect to interior design, exterior design, and architecture. There is no question. There are companies thinking differently about the business of design and how to make products super serve those for whom they're being made. One of those companies, and one of my favorites, is Moya Living designer and fabricators of some of the most stunningly beautiful, incredibly durable, and highly functional kitchen, bath, and outdoor kitchen cabinetry on the market today. Powder-coated steel with stunning lines, vibrant colors to fit any design style or aesthetic. A history of designing cabinetry for the scientific community, so you know it's been tested in some of the truly 
the most harsh conditions available. Moya O'Neill is the CEO and founder of Moya Living. She's the inspiration behind the design. Designers, their specification process is so simple. It will make your job so much easier. Check them out online through the socials at Moya Living, their website, moyaliving.com, and in the real world, their live kitchen showroom in Fountain Valley, California. So there you go. Thank you, Jules, Laura, Kevin, amazing. Thank you, George, moderated to perfection. As always, you are absolutely amazing. Thank you, Thermosol, Article, York Wall Coverings, Franz Wigner, and Moya Living for your partnership and support of Convo by Design. You are remarkable partners and amazing allies for the trade. Thank you. And thank you for listening and subscribing to the podcast. You already know this, but there are literally hundreds of past episodes of Convo by Design that you probably haven't heard, especially if you are new to the show. Even if you're not, this episode is well into the 300s. There are others you have not heard, so go check them out. And remember why you do what you do and that the business of design is about making better the lives of those we serve, right? Until next week, be well and take today first. Mm -hmm.